First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. A couple of the brothers asked me what I was preaching about today. So I gave them an indication, but I don't want to reveal too much. <laughs> but um, uh, it's interesting because today's message um, could have easily, well, been incorporated into the series on holiness. And in fact, it was uh, one of those thoughts that was circulating in my mind uh, during that time. And so, um, and so I kind of, it's not that I want to continue the series because that's not the case, but I do want to examine this particular scripture in its context and also of holiness as well. Because um, I, I, just, I just think it's important that we understand it and that we have an under, uh, a revelation of God and of His will for us, as we know. And, uh, and really, the text that we're going to look at covers a few bases and gives us an understanding of God's intention in our lives. And so it's rich. Really, it's rich in divine truth. And it's important that Christians un- understand it because it reveals to us His will for our lives. And so... Uh, so that always makes it important. Now, you may remember when we did our series on holiness at various stages, especially at the beginning, I did make the point that um, there in, in holiness teachings that there have been some uh, errors in terms of theology and understanding the doctrine of holiness. And, um, and what was one of those things was born. And uh, this is not to criticise John Wesley or the Methodist movement because they were very serious about holiness and very serious about a separation from the world and and that should be the attitude of the Christian by all means. But uh, there was a a doctrine that evolved that was known as um, Christian perfection or or that incorporated the eradication of sin, that we could be perfected in love and... um, and so forth, but um, as much as men strived for it, they realised that um, you know, uh, in, as long as we're in this body, we cannot attain to the fullness of perfection that is uh, uh, God has prepared uh, for those that love Him. Amen. Which is going to be when we receive a new body and uh, are glorified, as the Scripture tells us. But nevertheless. God is working in our hearts to perfect us. And though we will ultimately be perfected, that doesn't mean that we are not to strive towards perfection in that we are lo- the Lord um, uh, uh, is working in us to accomplish certain uh, uh, aspects of holiness in our lives. And so um, we will never on this side of heaven, in this body, achieve uh, that level of perfection until Christ comes and we are transformed. When this which is corruptible puts on incorruption, amen, and we are glorified in his presence and we will be perfect. But we strive. And so we understand that positionally we are perfect in Christ. When we, we are imputed with the righteousness of God, and so we are declared righteous. And when God looks at us, amen, we are perfect. Yes. In Him, by His blood. And uh, that's the positional. So, but there's that, that, that practically, have we achieved that yet? No. Is it achievable in this life? No. In terms practically. 
But it's coming, praise the Lord. So I want to examine with you a biblical word this morning and uh, that helps us define holiness because the fact is, is that uh, there's a difference between the word uh, uh, faultless or perfect and uh, the word blameless in Scripture. And I want to look at this word, what it means to be blameless. Because the truth is, is that a sanctified Christian uh, can have even good motives and yet we still can stuff things up. True? Even sometimes we approach things with the best intentions. We, uh, we, we, we make a mess of things. We make mistakes and we err in our judgment. And, and so even that's a reality that we have to endure and live with. I mean, God, he's, he's perfect. He doesn't make those type of mistakes. So thank God for that. So an unintended wrong action with a pure motive is... Not sin, in that sense, okay? It's a blunder, it's a mistake, it's, it's part of our human makeup. But on the contrary, the flip side of that is that you can have a right action, listen to this, you can have a right action, but with a wrong motive. And that is wrong. That is sinful. That is, uh, does not make you blameless. Oh yeah, you did what was right. But your heart was wrong. You see how you have those, those aspects at work. I mean, a right action with the wrong motive is sin. Can you, we talk about Judas, probably the best example. He comes to Jesus, hey brother. Mwah! And Jesus says to him, friend. And we know his heart was full of deceit. And uh, it was the greatest betrayal in history. And yet, he betrayed the Lord with a kiss. A greeting. I'm your friend. <laughs> sure you are. <laughs> Got the knife. You ever had any experiences like that in life? <laughs> yep. They're there. And so when we talk about holiness this morning and, blame, and being blameless, I, I want to touch on, on this depth of, of, of motive, this depth of heart that we see in the Scriptures. And we'll bring this out also in the text that we're going to look at as we touch upon it. But blamelessness has to do with our motives. You know, King David, he was guilty. I mean, he, he, he committed adultery and, um, and he had... Uriah killed in the heat of battle. And, and he was confronted ultimately in his sin. And uh, then he penned that Psalm 51, his, we know as his prayer of repentance. And he talks and reveals much in that particular psalm. But one of the words he says, he says these words. He says, Lord, you desire truth in the inward part. Truth in the inward part. Because, you see, it's, it's this issue of the heart and it's deep thoughts, it's deep motives. I mean, wouldn't it be good if we could just open up everyone's mind and I could read all your thoughts right now? <laughs> you see, but we can't. Only God sees the heart, true? God knows the inner depths. He knows the motives and why we do what we do. 
And so, you know, it's, and, and it's the age-old statement. You've probably heard it. It's, it's not what you do, but it's why you do what you do that gives uh, validity or, uh, in, or makes invalid your actions. Because outwardly, you can have all of those things in place and appear to be good, but inwardly, there's, a, there's, there's deceit. There, there is not a blamelessness. And so, you know, in a court of law, when they want to establish guilt on somebody, you know, if they want to determine the difference between murder and manslaughter, what is it that they look for? A motive. A motive. What's, what's the motive of the heart? Was this deliberate or was it accidental? Because motive provides the basis for guilt. And this is what we see in the scripture. This is why we have this, this word blameless in the scripture as well that we find. But God always sees. The Bible says um, in Proverbs 20 verse 27, it says, The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. The spirit of a man is the lamp. And the God searches the inner depths of the heart. He sees all things. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, test the heart and I search the heart because God knows what's in there. We don't even know sometimes. We deceive ourselves. But God knows. And so... God is working in us in this process of sanctification to change us and transform us because there's nothing more wonderful than seeing sincerity of heart. You know, you, we talk about that phrase, sincerity of heart. People that are blameless, people that are pure in that sense. Not perfect, not perfect, far from it at times. But this purity of heart that the Bible uh, speaks about. So when we speak about holiness this morning and sanctification, we're talking about two things as we've established. We are, uh, we, the Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 that we are blameless. We are without blame before him. We are made holy. We are without blame. We're blameless because, not because of uh, us, because of redemption, the blood. That's positional. But then there's the practical. But the practical means now I have to. I'm, there's a responsibility on my part. Who am I? Am I being conformed to the image of Christ? Am I becoming more like God? Am I being transformed? And my character being changed? Or are these things in there that ought not to be there? Let's look at the scripture this morning. Let's read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. The Bible says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen. Now Paul's writing here in his closing words, his admonition to the church at Thessalon the Thess of Thessalonians. And it's insightful in the manner in which he speaks here. 
because Paul's admonition is being referred to as entire sanctification because he's incorporating the whole man, the spirit, the soul, and the body. And of course, God has a plan as we've established before. (coughs) But you see, the Bible stresses the holiness of God. And we see that Paul is emphasizing this when he talks about that may the God of peace himself sanctify or separate or uh, make you holy is uh, the emphasis that is being made here in spirit, soul and body and be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we, as we've spoken about the holiness of God, you'll find that there is great emphasis in Scripture. There's, there's, there's two sides, again, two tensions that relate to this. But we talk about holiness and we talk about the fear of God. And the fear of God is associated with this. But then there's a the counter of that. When we talk about holiness of God, people want to talk about and emphasize the love of God. And the love of God being the motivating factor rather than the fear of God being the motivating factor in your Christian life. And there's truth to both of these in their context. These tensions are good and have their place. But you see, love, God is love this morning. And God's intention is to establish our hearts in the love of God. The Bible says, or John actually, uh, he writes in his epistle and he says, perfect love casts out fear. And that he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And so to be perfected in God's love, to be complete and established in his love is, is, is God's will for his child this morning. And so... There is an aspect of the fear of God that relates to being reverent of him. And even if that's tipped to the scale of fearful and scared, well, you know what? At the end of the day, whether it's fear or love, if it motivates you to do what's right, then do it. Praise God. Because what I've noticed is even when it is the fear of God that has motivated an individual, God in his will and purposes establishes that person in his love. Because you can't live your Christian life just being f- scared of God. You know, that somehow, you know, the, of God being vengeful and wrathful and all the time, because that's not going to benefit us in any way. That's not what God's called us to. He wants us to be established in his love. And so holiness uh, mustn't be always from the place of fear. That's not, that's not healthy. That's not good. It has to be from the place of love. Because God is love. The reason why I touch upon that, because Paul says in, the, in verse 23, he says, May now the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The God of peace. And I think about that because it gives us the, the basis of, you know, because think about it. God is not, he's not stressed. He's not anxious about things. He's the God of peace. And when we are, we are in him, as our brother mentioned, we are, have entered into his rest. And so the peace, the, the peace of God is central. So when Paul refers to uh, the God of peace, we have to identify with that in this process of holiness and sanctification as he's referring to it. That's why we say if you're going to have the peace of God, you, have to have made, uh, you first have to make peace with God. 
That's why the Bible says in Romans 5, it says these words, it says, having, uh, uh, having um, made peace with God, the love of God has been, what, shed abroad in our hearts. So we've made peace with God. And in having made peace with, with God, the Bible tells us that the peace of God is to rule in our hearts. Let, in Colossians, Paul writes to the church and he says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And so God's peace is, 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 is central. It is of great significance and greater importance this morning that we abide in the peace of God. You see, the peace of God. In Acts chapter 9, and it's in verse 31 actually, but the Bible says that they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were edified. You see, because when you walk in the, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit or the love of God or peace, there's lots of things that come in that comfort, right? And the comfort of the Holy Spirit, there we find a place of edification, that we go on to growth and spiritual maturity and development, or in other words, sanctification in this instance, in that we are edified in the Lord, not just in our knowledge, but also in our, in our lives. So that peace is a place of rest. It's rest for our souls. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. And so rest is the place of, of where we start, the God of peace. That's why in Ephesians it talks about that we are what? Seated with him in heavenly places. You know, that's why the whole metaphor of the book of Ephesians as a way to teach it is sit, walk, and stand. Because before you walk, you've got to learn to sit. You sit in Christ, because that's where we are, the God of peace. And then we proceed to walk. And we walk in what? Holiness and so forth. So it's important that we understand that aspect, the God of peace. Now the Bible says in verse 23, the God of peace himself, Paul refers to, sanctify you completely. And so here it is. We begin to see that God is the one that is sanctifying us. God is the one that is working in us. And so now this is not positional. This is practical, okay? This is what Paul's admonition and uh, instruction is to the church. And uh, so he's making the point, not as in Ephesians, that is positional, but rather now to the Thessalonians and to ourselves, that is practical, and that the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless. So this word is complete. Again, that word means in the Greek to be to complete to the end, absolutely perfect. And you know why we can, Paul uses the word completely? Because that's what God's going to do. Amen. When he's finished with us, we're all going to be perfected. He's going to be completed. Are we there yet? No, but we're on our way there, praise the Lord. So, he says, sanctify you completely in your whole spirit, soul, and body. Now, this is important just to stop here because 
when we talk about spirit, soul, and body, because we are tripart. We talk about the Trinity. We talk about the triune nature of God. We are tripart and, um, in that we are spirit, soul, and body. And Paul addresses these three aspects in this particular statement because when we talk about entire sanctification, it incorporates all aspects of this, these three dimensions or these three aspects, I should say. So we have here, we understand spirit, soul, and body. And the Bible tells us that the, the, you know, people talk about the spirit and soul and try to differentiate and define it. But the Bible is clear that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And it divides between soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. I mean, again, when you look at joints and marrow, they kind of into, you know, they kind of, there's all, anyway, we're not going to go in that way. But the point is, is that the word of God differentiates and divides it, Okay. And so, but there's an interwoven aspect that we could say that's attached to it when we talk about the soul. But the Bible is clear, spirit, soul, and body. Because when you are born again, what happens? You are, it's a, we call it a spiritual rebirth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And a spiritual rebirth, born from above, and the spirit of God enters, and we become the temple of God, and the spirit of God dwells in our spirit. And so the Bible refers to uh, Gis as the spiritual man or the inner man. These are different uh, f- phrases that the scripture uses as you read the epistles and you begin to identify this in, in the, the hidden man, the inner man. And so the spirit of God is at work to build up the inner man. The spirit of God is at work to build up the spiritual man. And this is important, and the, and the Bible touches upon this. Look at um, Ephesians is the most uh, uh, direct in this when it talks about the Spirit. And it says in chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, it says that, that he would grant you, meaning God, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, through his spirit in the inner man. The inner man, the spiritual man. The spiritual, when I say man, don't, it's not, it's a, it's a, you know, it incorporates you women too, okay? It's a, it, it's a, we don't have to be gender neutral and specific and all of this, okay? We're not going to go down that pathway. But you see, the inner man. Or the inner man of the heart. So the Spirit of God wants to strengthen our spirit and we are built up. Listen to what it says, that Christ, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. There it is again. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding. So again, but the point being is, is that we are to be, the inner man is to be built up. And again, I, 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 I've said it before, and it always rem- has, has, has remained with me, but it was Smith Wigglesworth that said that I'm a hundred thousand times bigger on the inside than I am on the outside. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
And so the old man is getting old and frail and all the rest of it, but the inward man is alive and it's, 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 it's growing and developing and strengthening and maturing. In actual fact, death is just the next phase of preparation to step into the next. Put off this body. So we see that God would sanctify your whole spirit. And so again, this is because the way we live and conduct ourselves can make us clean or, and pure in heart or we can, you know, we can uh, have unconfessed sin or things in our lives that, have, uh, uh, that can defile us. Okay, this is important. So sanctify you completely in your spirit and then, then it says in your soul. Now it's interesting because when we think about the soul, we're talking now about the, the dimension of our, of, of our being that deals with um, uh, the, the, the dimension of our being that deals with our choices and our emotions and our will. And so it's in, what I find interesting in the book of James, in chap, James chapter 1, verse 21, James writes and he says here, he says, therefore, he's speaking to the believers, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to, what? Save your souls. Say, so, well, wait a minute, isn't my soul saved? Yet yeah, you're saved. Okay? But the word here, save, is salvation, so it's the same word we use for salvation. But he's saying this, this is able to save your soul. What James is talking about is, is, is sanctification. He's talking about that your soul would be renewed, that your soul would be changed, that your soul uh, would be restored, that your soul would be healed. Because you see, sin uh, breaks us down. Sin has corrupted us. And so there's a transformation that is taking place in the process of sanctification in our lives. And so when James says, don't, because what does he say? Don't just be hearers of the word, but doers, deceiving yourselves. That's what happens. Because if you don't, if you don't apply the word of God, if you don't obey the word of God, then in fact, how is it that you're, it's that, it's obeying the word of God that is able to save your soul. Or in other words, to transform your soul and to conform it to the image of Christ and all of those things that are associated with it. So you can see here the scripture as it relates to this. In fact, if we go to Ephesians again, chapter 4, we'll see this reiterated, Ephesians 4 and verse 23. And Paul writes and he says, be, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The spirit of your mind. This is where the soul resides. That you may, verse 24, that you may put on the new man that was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. But to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that word renew is, is the word renovate. Meaning that God, when we get saved, God takes us as we are. But he doesn't let us remain the same. And he's in the process of renewing our minds. He's in the, the process of transforming our lives and conforming us to the image 
of his son. And this is the work of transformation that's taking place in the soul. So Paul says, you sanctify you completely, spirit, soul, and body. Body. Now, as we know that the soul is being changed from glory to glory, the body as well is referred to in Scripture as the temple of God. Not just the spirit. The, spirit, the Bible talks about the spirit being the temple of God, but also the Bible refers to the body as being the temple of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, this is where Paul says, he says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So not only if God dwells in your spirit, in your, in, in your person, then this makes up, your body is a part of that. Okay? And he says, don't you know your, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See? Now, the body we know... And it's not that the, when we talk about the body, we talk about the physical body, but there's obviously the flesh and it's the carnal inclinations of the human heart, the Adamic nature, the lower nature, the, the carnal, you know, the scripture talks about. But the body, now the body can still be separate. This is the will of God, uh, is your sanctification, that you know how to, we should know how to conduct ourselves with our, with our bodies. And so, uh, because uh, we can easily... You know, if you feed the flesh, you can go in an opposite direction. And so here we have it that um, uh, now the body will be ultimately, according to Scripture, we know that God, can, you know, when it talks about entire sanctification, sanctify you completely, completely the body when we have the new body, amen? And so that's what we're waiting for as part of the fullness of our redemption and the fullness of our salvation, the redemption of the body. It's coming. There's going to be a resurrection, hallelujah. And we're going to have a new celestial uh, body that will be incorruptible and it won't be subjected to the things that we are subjected to now in this life. But you see, God's invested in the whole person this morning, spirit, soul, and body. And that's why Paul makes this emphasis in his, in his writing when he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And he says that, that may your whole spirit, soul and body, now listen to these words, be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says until the coming of the Lord. Preserved blameless. God is in the, the aspect of preserving us. Hallelujah. Thank God for that. But there's his part and there is our part. But nevertheless, this is important. Until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, it says, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And that's why he'll, Paul will write to the church at Philippians in verse one, verse six, chapter 1, verse 6, and he says uh, that he has begun a good work in you, will complete it until when? The day of Christ. Because up until this, the return of Christ, when everything is completed... Fully, that's what, we, 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 until the coming of the Lord, that's when it all ends, the completeness and fullness of our salvation. He's going to do it. But in the meantime, the Bible says, work out your own salvation. 
with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So in that process of working out our own salvation, God is working in us. And we find this expression preserved blameless. Now, what does it mean to be preserved blameless? The word, what the scripture is saying here is that we will be kept from transgression. Preserved, because we're kept from transgression, kept by God. Think about that for a moment. Kept by God. Now, this is important because, again, it goes back to the point I said at the beginning, and I'll illustrate it in a moment. But to be preserved blameless means to be kept from transgression. And this has to do, again, this goes into the heart of when we talk about being blameless before God. It talks, we're dealing with a blameless, practically speaking, of our own hearts before God. Because this is what will qualify whether we're kept blameless or whether we're preserved blameless, is if we are blameless in our deep motives of our heart. Because, you see... Only God sees what's going on inside. And so, you know, that's why James says that when he talks about sin, he says that sin dwells in the deepest depths of our heart. As a man thinketh, so is he. Whatever goes into the mind will come out in the life. And uh, the, uh, talk, James talks about that uh, sin is conceived where? In the desires. And so when desire has, 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 it gives birth, it gives birth to sin. And sin grown brings forth death but it, it, it germinates right in the depth of the human heart the motives because when you look at an action of your life you if you trace it it goes back far deeper than just before you did it right there's things going on in your mind and there's motives of heart at work and so this this deals with the truth in the inward parts which God is looking for this is what God's looking for this morning. You know when Jesus saw Nathaniel, what was his first words to him? He says, Nathaniel, he says, a man without guile. In other words, Nathaniel is he has no pretense in his heart. He doesn't have ulterior motives. There is something about Nathaniel that Jesus is noting. And, uh, and again, on, on, uh, at the surface aspect of this, and he's dealing with the reality that Nathaniel is without guile. He doesn't have ulterior motives. He's not, he's not two-faced. He's not a hypocrite. But what you see is what you get. There's nothing hidden. He doesn't have a secret agenda in his heart. There's no motive. He's without guile, Jesus said. And so, when the deepest motives of our hearts are wrong this morning, now listen to this, when the deepest motives of our hearts are wrong, God is limited in what he can do. He may work to stop us and to get our attention, and he does, but this, that seed will, will germinate and it will, you will harvest it in your life. And when that sets its course, God may try and get your attention, but he, you, until you repent or you stop what you're doing, you know, there's usually an outcome there. But it limits God when those things are, are motivating us. But you see, when there's a purity of heart and without guile, God can guide, God can direct, and God can intervene. 
And uh, because, you know, sometimes we're in the midst of situations and circumstances, we can, you know, take wrong steps or, or, or maybe do something wrong. And we say, God, help us, direct my steps, establish my thoughts. My heart is clean and pure, but, uh, but I need you to direct me and to guide me. And this is, a, in a certain sense, what we're seeing. But God is looking for, for this type of a heart. And this is what he wants to work in us. And this is what he's looking for in us. Remember, Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 17, 9, I quoted it earlier, but the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who could know? You know, people say, oh, they've got a good heart. <laughs> I hope they have. But, you know, let's be careful before we start throwing those words around because there's only one that's good. Because the depths of the human heart, the inner depths, what God sees, well, only we know what God sees. But you see, that's why the Bible says these words. It says, the Spirit of God searches the earth to and fro, and he's looking for a heart that is what? Loyal to him. Or in other words, whole. Or in other words, a pure motive. I think this is what made David the man after God's own heart, in a certain sense, one of the aspects, because we clearly see that he wasn't perfect in it, far from it. In fact, we see the opposite. But nevertheless, there was a dimension of this in which he worshipped God. And so, but God is looking for a heart. He's searching to and fro throughout the whole earth to find a heart that is whole, complete, loyal, that is, that is, is uh, you know, it's because this is what we're like. We give, we, we give God a little bit. Or some. Or we say, oh, yeah, I love God, but, you know, we're not serving God with our whole heart. That's why Jesus said, what's the highest uh, law? Is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and your strength. Because it's the whole. God's looking for that. But no, we can come to church and play the role and say, Lord, I love you, but our heart is somewhere else. You see what I'm saying? That's a divided heart. God can't, that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for wholeness. He's looking for purity of heart. And where that, is, where that exists, God will work in a person's life to stop them or keep them from sin, where this blamelessness of heart exists. And I was thinking of the story, you may be familiar with it, of Abraham and Abimelech in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And what's interesting in that particular story is that Abraham goes, and uh, I think it's down to Egypt, and, um, and he says to Sarah, listen, just tell him that you're my sister, okay? Not, you're not my wife. A little half true there. But, um, and so anyway, the story goes, if you're familiar with it, that Abimelech, the king, he looks at Sarah and says, oh, she's, she's a nice, fine lady. And, and he says, you know, I'm going to take her for myself. Because as far as I know, she's not married, doesn't have, you know, Abraham, he's just, it's his, it's his brother and sister. <laughs> and so he takes uh, um, uh, Sarah and uh, he obviously has some intentions there in which he's going to take her to himself as a wife. And then the Bible says that God meets him in a dream in Abimelech and he says, you touch that woman and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> right? And Abimelech's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, God. I didn't know. I did this, and this is the words he used, I did this out of the integrity of my heart. 
There wasn't, there wasn't deceit. I, you know, I wasn't trying to wrong Abraham. I wasn't trying to do anything. And God responds to Abimelech. He says, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Therefore, I've intervened uh, so that you would not sin against me. And so, in other words, God acknowledged the blamelessness that was associated with Abimelech in that circumstance, and he divinely intervened, and he preserved him blameless. And that's, that's an illustration of what I'm talking about, how God can work in the midst of circumstances. When, we, when there's the blamelessness of heart, God can guide, God can direct, God can reveal, God can intervene, or if he has to do something like that, and say, you know, whatever it is, but God gets involved, that's the point. And preserving us blameless before him. You know, what's the character of those this morning that will dwell in the presence of the Lord? In Psalm 15, In Psalm 15, verse 1, I think it is, and 2, listen to the words of the psalmist. It says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Blameless character. Righteous conduct. We're talking about character here that God recognizes. It's a wholeness of heart. And again, it doesn't have to do with perfection or faultlessness or even to a certain extent sinlessness. But blamelessness has to do with a soundness of character. And this is the character that we want before the Lord this morning. This needs to be our hearts. This is what God's looking for, church. You know, if you've lived life long enough, you can see the importance of this truth because, it, you know, we're humans, right? We thrive on relationships and fellowship and with one another and we want relationships with people that are genuine. I mean, yes, we're a family of God. We're all here this morning and God bless and the Christian community at large. But you see, if we're going to have sweet fellowship, then we have to have that character. Because where that character doesn't exist, then lots of other things creep into churches and into the assembly that, that spoil it. True? And so where we see people who have agendas, people who have motives, people whose conduct doesn't line up with their words and, and their double speech and their double two-faced and they say one thing and act in another way and, and all of those things, this is not blamelessness. And usually our actions reveal the motives of our hearts. Always do. You know, Paul was so mindful of this in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, he writes in verse 19, and he says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one, listen to those words, no one, I have no one like-minded, who will sincerely 
care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. What a statement. Think about that for a moment. Paul is looking at his, the Christian community and he's saying, this is my assessment. He says, listen, send to me Timothy, my son Timothy in the faith. Because I can't find anyone like-minded and with a sincere heart. In other words, that they, they're blameless. They don't have a hidden agenda or ulterior motives in what they're doing and how they're acting. Their interest is God and, and pleasing him and doing what's right. And so he says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your needs or your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus. And this is, this is written, now if you go back, look at verse chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church of the Philippians and there are, there are those that, have, um, that are opposing Paul and, um, and that are working against him and, you know, and they're, trying to, you know, they're trying to, in selfish ambition, I guess, win believers to themselves. It's the way that Paul would talk about it. And some are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, out of selfish ambition, selfish motives. And he's acknowledging this reality. And this is what he concludes. Look at verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. So there's a, there's a distinction. Some that are sincere, some that are not. That's what he's saying. And he says, The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, Supposing to add in affliction to my chains. <laughs> Isn't that good? They're, so, you know, they're, they're, they're doing what they're doing, knowing they're causing poor, poor harm and grief because their actions and their motives are not pure. He says, The former preach Christ from selfish ambition and not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So there, there's, there's, a, there's a blamelessness, there's a pureness. He says, what then is the conclusion? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or whether in truth, I'm going to rejoice because Christ is preached and in this I will rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. You see, rather than look at the negative and being drowned in the sorrow and disappointment of those that have ulterior motives, of those that are not blameless in their conduct, those that have selfish ambition and their uh, way in which they're going about things, he says, you know what, at the end of the day, they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching Christ. And he says, you know what, whether it's in pretense, whether it's in truth, I'll leave that into God's hands on Judgment Day, but I, I'm going to rejoice, and again, I've determined I'm going to rejoice. And that's where Paul had to get to, and that's where I have to get to, and that's where we all have to get to, amen? Because that's the reality of life. But I tell you, I want to be blameless. God, the motives... You know, I remember times when I was a young Christian and I began to learn and discover some of these truths, and... And I used to bring things before the Lord and pray about some things. And, and I was trying to be mindful of my motives. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm, you know, Paul says, I can't judge myself, okay? We can't 
do that because sometimes we can think that we've got the best intentions and the purest of motives but God knows but nevertheless it's good to examine ourselves it's good to sit down and and, and allow God to reveal our hearts you know is there something in because if there's something that's not there then God's going to show it because why because God wants to preserve us blameless God wants to sanctify us spirit soul and body And so he will correct us and he will reveal these things to us. Why? So that we can be changed and we become like Christ. Because, hey, we can all play the hypocrite where there's strife and envy and hypocrisy in in, in the assembly. And that's what we find in the epistles, isn't it? That's what we find in the state of the church. And that, that atmosphere, the Bible says, grieves the Holy Spirit of God. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Because that's not what God's looking for. Okay, we're not perfect, but let us be pure. We might not be perfect, and we're not, because if you're looking for the perfect church, you're not going to find it, and and once you've got it, as soon as you join, it's not perfect anymore. Because we've all got our faults. None of us are perfect. But who are we on the inside? What are our motives? Is this sincerity? And genuineness and love, because where those things exist, any obstacle will be overcome. And so, God is working towards our entire sanctification. You know, Paul saw the scarcity of soundness of character amongst his contemporaries. He said, in fact, he said, they've all forsaken me. I mean, that's that's insane. And so how he loved and appreciated sincerity and truth when he saw it. I think Paul was, we see this in Paul's character. I think that's why he was so intolerant of John Mark initially as well. You know, people talk about, who's right, Paul Barnabas? You know, that's a whole another old debate. But you see, Paul said, I, I can't trust this guy, at least at that point. Because there's got to be a confidence you know, in Proverbs, I'm reading, I'm going to read this from the Amplified Bible, okay? But in Proverbs 25, verse 26, the Pro, uh, Amplified Bible, which says it more clearly, it says, Like a muddied fountain and a polluted spring is a righteous man who yields, falls down, and compromises his integrity before the wicked. And I don't, I, I don't want to be a muddied fountain. Lord, help me. God's got to preserve me and keep me from that because it's not in myself to accomplish that. I might have the best intentions, but I can't accomplish it. God's got to help me. I don't know the inner depths of my heart like God knows. But you see, God is looking for integrity this morning. And that word integrity, it means to be complete, to be whole, to be perfect and sound in heart. That's why we use the phrase ulterior motives. When a person does not have integrity of heart, then there's other motives and issues and intents at work in that heart. And there's nothing more frustrating to a relationship than that. Isn't that true? Whether it's even marriages. Marriages break down because of this distrust. And then, you know, uh, friendships can break down because of this, this dimension, this element that manifests itself. And churches are not exempt from this. Far from it. Because where there's people, these things can exist. And so, God, give us a heart of integrity this morning. Let us be characterized in soundness of character and be blameless.
because the God wants us to be this morning. Sincere love is what makes a mature and healthy Christian church. Let me read one last scripture in closing, if I may. In Psalm 18, verse 25, the Bible says, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. But with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You know what? You can't outwit God. (laughs) Oh, we play games. We can be devious, but God's not stupid. You You might be able to deceive others, but we can never deceive God. And with the devious, God shows himself shrewd. In verse 27, it says, For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. And so let us go on to perfection this morning. Let us seek truth in the inward parts. Let us have soundness of character and be blameless before the Lord and before the brethren. Because this is, the, this is what it means to be completely sanctified and be preserved blameless before the Lord. Because if we take that approach, that's why I believe, actually I might say this now, just come, that's why the scripture says that if we fellowship with one another and have love for one another, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Why? Because there's a purity of motive. There is a blamelessness that's at work and God recognises it and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from those imperfections that are there because they're there. But you see, when, we, when the heart is not as it ought to be and, and these things manifest, they, they, they bring destruction and it's like a cancer and, it brings, and these things need to be repented of because God will deal with them or they'll manifest in, in different ways. But are you seeing what I'm seeing? You, can you see what the scripture's saying this morning? And I say this to say that, that's what I want to be. That's what you need to be. And so let's, if, if we need to repent, if we need to confess, if God's dealing with our hearts, the inner depths of our hearts, you know what it is. Confess it to God and get it right and become blameless before the Lord and before others this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God, for your Holy Spirit that is working in us, Lord. And the confidence that we have is that you are faithful. You're going to complete this work until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be obedient. We would, be, uh, surre- we would surrender. We would yield to the working of the Holy Spirit. God, transform us, God, uh, in our minds. Renew our minds. Build us up in the inner man. God, conform us to the image of your Son. Oh, Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people in Jesus' name. Amen.